So, let's start. Sure. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Watchmo studio in Wageningen. Our guest today is Bart Donafer, former farmer, researcher, entrepreneur, and nowadays entrepreneurial educator, where you found more or less the balance between all of your interests, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. This is the short introduction. If you have a practice pitch, how you want to pitch yourself, <laughs> go for it. But I have a bunch of questions just to go through your life, what motivated you and what uh, drove you on different directions in your life and, and different steps and what led you to what you are today and what you do yeah. today. Yeah. So that's the, that's the plan. Yeah, I, I liked your abbreviated version. Oh, it's, cool. Uh, it's good enough. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll get through the details, uh, I think, throughout this conversation. Yeah. You are a partner at the Source Institute and you are also a guest lecturer at, uh, at Wageningen University. And you are teaching entrepreneurship and uh, business model innovation. Yes. You studied originally animal science and then somehow yeah, you went wound up in an office. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's strange. But what I think it's very significant that in 2000, you, you were quite young back then, you went to Uruguay for a year or a year or so. Uh, it was a couple of months, yeah. 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 And uh, I know from my experience, because I, I was also around 20 when I went abroad uh, for a farm internship, it was also a deep experience for me, also personally, somewhat professionally. But uh, how was it for you? Um, yeah, so I went to Uruguay because um, I I was looking to to start a farm somewhere, and uh, my parents don't have a farm, so it wasn't mm -hmm. like a natural choice for me to to get into the business. Um, and it came around, I think, the third year of my my education uh, in the for the animal science degree that you had to do like a, a summer internship somewhere. And uh, yeah, I heard about like outdoor uh, production systems and systems where uh, investment is uh, a bit cheaper than here in Holland with land prices, etc. And then naturally you sort of diverge to Latin America and New Zealand. And I've never been to Latin America, so I was yeah. just curious. And I went there. Yeah, yeah. I worked on the farm there uh, for a couple of months. Yeah. And was it a very modernized uh, farm or semi or compared to the Netherlands? What was your experience? I think it's uh, for Uruguayan standards. It was a pretty high-end farm with uh, good uh, good genetics on the farm, and they had uh, you know proper milking machines and experienced people milking the cows. So that was uh, yeah, it was good to do. But it's not quite comparable as to here because yeah. cows are outside like yeah, yeah. All, all year there. Yeah. yeah. So you had already the mindset that you wanted to be a farmer. You didn't really have the farmer background from your family side, yes. but you were looking for opportunities to actually uh, to explore and see, to, yeah. you know, is this a good place and to maybe start yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. at yeah. some point start to farm somewhere. Yeah. So you had this farmer drive. And in 2012, uh, you were involved in an Argentinian project, which was already more into the economic side and business side of uh, yeah, that was that was two thousand two, I think. Two thousand two. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Two thousand two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so that's a year later. Yeah. So I worked in Uruguay a lot, and then I went to look at Argentina, and I had to do like a company internship. So not so much on the farm, but maybe yeah. another type of company. And um, yeah, that's how I uh, wound up in 
uh, that particular context doing uh, it was sort of a it was a consultancy assignment so I got one of a consultancy agency here in Wageningen at yeah. the time to to fund my basically my, my stay there for the I don't know eight or nine months I was there um, yeah it was an interesting time because that's also the time that uh, the crisis hit Argentina yeah. and there was like big financial turmoil and there was lots of things going on and that yeah I was sort of very conservative and apprehensive about uh, the economic side. I was more interested in animals and animal production yeah. and uh, natural systems. And uh, but then I got into the whole topic of economics and feasibility yeah. due to just the context there and people having that on the the top of their mind, basically. And that yeah, that led to sort of my interests on that area of, yeah, of yeah. the system, the production yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that uh, someone has a specific interest and uh, then in mainstream comes in some totally different uh, attention. Where everybody is, ah, there is crisis, we want to do something with that. And, and then you, you, you feel the, the urge that you have to figure out something because you cannot pursue your, your original interest mm -hmm. if, the, for example, the financial part is, need, uh, is not uh, backed up. Exactly. Yeah. And then after Argentina, you started as a researcher uh, at LEI, yeah. uh, this uh, Lombo Economics Institute. Yeah, the Agricultural uh, Economics Research Institute. Translated uh, yeah. to yeah. English as Agricultural yeah. Economics Institute. Now even has a different yeah. name now. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you went into research, which is uh, another aspect of the yeah. whole thing. You, you, you stayed around the agriculture and entrepreneurship and economics but uh, it was more research so not the doing part but the yeah so yeah, it's a sort of a practical very dumb explanation behind that choice um, so I had a fourth year uh, uh, for my degree and I had to do a series of, of, of practical internships really intensive and somehow during that year I developed uh, an allergy uh, for something to do with with barn dust, like a combination mm. of, of uh, animal skin yeah, uh, flakes yeah. and and feed, and I basically I could not work um, in a, in on a farm anymore yeah. because my eyes would get swollen and my hands yeah. would get blisters and wow. and the doctor said to me, yeah, you have a, yeah, <laughs> don't don't become a farmer. Think of do something else. Yeah, and that's how I sort of migrated into this option of. Uh, working for uh, the Agriculture Economics Research Institute, who also helped me during my internship in Argentina and with connections oh, okay. there, so I already knew some people, and yeah. Yeah, that's how I sort of rolled into that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very uh, intensive uh, experience of work in a sense that you had to travel a lot, uh, so you could build more connections and network, or it was more like just papers and uh, research? Oh, at the time I was very junior, so yeah. I was focusing mainly on uh, Dutch agriculture. I yeah. worked uh, on a department that focused heavily on uh, st the statistics and right uh, getting the numbers in. So there was a lot of desk work and uh, yeah. So that's why it's surprising that from the desk, from the very junior position, focused on the, in the Netherlands, you ended up uh, starting a, uh, a company in India. Yeah. <laughs> in two thousand six. <laughs> so you spent uh, three years at uh, the Lei. Yeah. And then. All of a sudden, or I mean, it's just from your CV, you started an organic or a, a company called Organic Compound, right? Yeah. Uh, which was uh, a cotton business in, 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 in India. We hear your stories in the, in the lectures that it was a social enterprise. Yeah. But uh, it was also, it had also something to do with the value chain of the whole 
how to develop the, the value chain of the whole system yeah. and you had also plans I don't know if it was uh, succeeded or not those plans that you wanted to do it on in Africa in other countries not just in India or not no so, no okay. India was big it enough. was just yeah, India yeah, yeah, okay yeah. it was just India yeah and uh, yeah just please tell me something about that did you have some connections friends or mentors who yeah, were based yeah, in so, India yeah. so like during my studies a friend of a good friend of mine he uh, he moved to India yeah. and worked for an, an NGO there uh, and that was during the time that I was doing my work at uh, the Agriculture Economics Research Institute and uh, at a certain point during my research uh, sort of budding research career there I got offered the opportunity to uh, do a PhD on uh, cooperatives and entrepreneurship and I was really interested in that in, in that topic and uh, I decided to take it. It was a bit of a weird setup for a PhD because it wasn't like a formal thing, but there was like some funding available and we could, I got like basically a year to write a PhD proposal to get it approved and go into one of the science schools here in Wageningen and then continue research on that. Um, it was like a very complicated process, a lot of politics involved as well. Yeah. So at a certain point I decided to just cut that project and not, not do it. And I was really feeling bad and then the relationship with my friend sort of bubbled up again. We were sort of pinging on and off and he said he was also fed up with his work at the mm. NGO in, in India. And he wanted to move from more like the, the non-profit angle of, of uh, development to more profit-based yeah. angle on development, social enterprise-based. Yeah. And we just, you know, just discussed back and forth some ideas of what we could do. And Cotton was somewhere where he had experience, but he also had a really good network uh, in India, a good relationship with an NGO, a small NGO that also had sort of the same vision on, yeah. on business and development. And that's how at least sort of our, 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 yeah, our process of bringing together, mashing together ideas started there. Yeah, because yeah. the NGOs are very dependent on the donors. And yeah. Well, yeah, you, you cannot really innovate on in a sense how how it how it would be actually possible because they have certain goals and they give the money for yeah. those certain goals and you have these uh, constraints. Yeah, well, what basically you had in the situation, there were a lot of NGOs working on cotton projects there, but the NGOs were organizing the trade for farmers and you saw mm -hmm. that they just basically lacked on the business sense and creativity yeah. and, yeah. and like building really good you know, value for customers and, and that type of thing and doing sales. Yeah. And yeah, the incentives were not quite right so he said yeah. maybe we could put like a more commercial type of entity instead of the NGO which would uh, create a better sort of negotiating position for farmers in, in supply chains basically yeah yeah and uh, it was the last lecture uh, last week when I heard this that was also about uh, the financing model what you wanted to change or it was the an other time in India with this circulating no no it's the same thing yeah, yeah. yeah so like yeah, cotton would have been the most obvious thing to start with and yeah. like if I would advise myself uh, with my experience now yeah. back to my junior self like a, I would say stick to just the one thing yeah. uh, but we got sort of lured into uh, expansive and over elaborate thinking on our projects mainly because we had a sort of easy access uh, philanthropist donor hmm. who just started a, a fund and for tax reasons they needed to just shove a lot of money in, in some kind of project yeah. so yeah. they th they saw our little thing yeah. and then asked us to make it bigger and then we made it bigger and we were not only focusing on cotton but also yeah. thinking of uh, connecting basically production systems with 
complementary uh, sowing and harvesting times uh, so that you could create some kind of a rotating fund between farmers of different sort of crop varieties uh, to provide funding to certain farmers uh, from farmers to take funding from farmers that don't really need that uh, amount of cash a lot of cash and, and inject that into uh, systems or other complementary seasons where farmers are, have the need for cash hmm. right and when you sow your crop that's all when you put your cash in the ground so you have a deficit but when you harvest and sell your crop then you have a lot of cash and there are ways of technically there are ways of yeah tying those production systems together yeah and uh, I mean, it's whatever was uh, the success rate of your project. It's still a lot within just two years in India. Like from the from the research, just uh, going to India and setting up even just the cotton uh, supply chain and the whole project yeah. in, in two years. It's already enough or a lot. But uh, thinking about that, you had this other donor uh, or this uh, finance finance rotation. Uh, idea, it's. I think it was all the same project. But so cotton was, was still, one of the things. Yeah. Still yeah. tough. Uh, it's a lot work. A lot, lot of work. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So those were like the hundred-hour work week type yeah. of things yeah. that um, first-time entrepreneurs tend to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I also advise against now because yeah. it's really bad for your health and family yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. I also had a kid then, a daughter. She was. Three or four at the time, so yeah. Wow. Yeah. Also went to India with you. No. No. Okay. no. So it was even more hard to yeah. be far away yeah. from the family. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So and then uh, there was something wrong with the donor, or the the concept of the of the cotton was was good, but the other. Uh, yeah, no, like we had some ideas for yeah. different pro crops and different. Uh, projects and we we all tried to visit them and make like plans together with the farmers to involve them and explain the concept and uh, also hire like local uh, staff to manage the project there yeah. and but yeah the <coughs> we thought that we would have done enough to create the basis of trust and that they'll start you know trying us out and trying mm. to trade with us but yeah that it what it actually required was more constant presence and more effort and more investment and we just did not have the resources in terms of our own time and yeah. scope to do that. Were you two of you, two founders? Yes, we were two founders and we, of course, we had some staff left yeah. and right, but technically it was, yeah, between the two of us. Yeah. Wow. And wow. like you also start to realize the, uh, yeah, the complexity and the why such a thing as specialization on something exists. Yeah. If you're doing the trading in rice, you know nothing about trading like coffee or yeah. Yeah. or spices or yeah. apples or yeah fruit from or cotton. Right, those are completely different businesses, and we thought we could just you know yeah. manage it from the Excel spreadsheet basically, nice. <laughs> which was not true. <laughs> yeah. So after this year, you went back to. Uh, Lay or Wageningen? It was already a different institution. It was already Wageningen. Yeah, no, what we did, we downscoped the project, yeah. focused on on cotton. Yeah. Uh, I worked on that intensively for a year, and uh, I also realized that I did not want to live in India and yeah. put my family there. Uh, I wanted to go back to to Holland, and the idea was to set up a system where we'd have like a marketing and sales office here, which I could run for the the cotton company yeah. in India because our customers were also here yeah. uh, but that would re require the business in India to grow to a certain uh, yeah a certain am amount of revenue that could yeah. support such a yeah. such an office 
and yeah we we didn't we couldn't grow it to that level so at a certain point i had to sort of decide like uh, uh, we cannot feasibly finance my yeah. my job anymore yeah. so i pulled out then yeah, yeah. yeah. and i and went back to uh, to my research job basically yeah. after that okay yeah and there is still one company working on the basis uh, or the or the foundation what you set set up uh, back then uh, i found I, something on yeah, yeah take it the company is called samin organic and on yeah. paper it still exists yeah. uh, you need like very complicated um uh, permits to trade over state border lines in India those are like a little asset you have so yeah. But it's, yeah, it's it's non-functional basically yeah. yeah the website's still there but that's yeah, yeah. yeah. who knows <laughs> what somebody might do with it so cost of keeping it up is pretty low yeah so you, after after the Indian uh, venture uh, you spent almost a decade back uh, in research seven eight years right yeah seven or years seven, seven years. years yeah yeah and in 2011, you started a blog, that, uh, which is about value chain creation. Yeah. And uh, one of the main topic of this blog was the importance of partnerships. I guess uh, when from your Indian uh, experiences, you figured out uh, that that's something what uh, maybe we have to put more attention on towards. You know, whatever we do, partnerships are super important. And I have a question about this, because the whole uh, value chain generation, uh, the blog, and also this topic, it seems to me, I don't know if it's true or not, if it was inspired by Alexander Osterwalder or not, by his work, or uh, just part A lot, yes. Yeah. But I, primarily I started the blog because I noticed that I had certain viewpoints or opinions which I could not express in my research work but I, which I thought were relevant to explore so they're, they're sort of new and untapped and there's not a lot of people working on these types of topics so it started off basically as sort of a collection of, of thoughts and ideas I had and like an open diary more or yeah, less yeah. and then yeah the idea was that maybe somebody would well, yeah would recognize some of these things and um, I, I primarily use it for like sharing when I was and uh, like doing a forum discussion or talking to somebody yeah. and they to, just to give them some context I could send them a link to a blog yeah. post like I've yeah. written something about it like I can yeah. look at it in a bit more detail that was sort of the idea and I think that around 2010 or 2009 something like that I, I learned about Alexander Osterwald's business yeah. model canvas and I instantly recognized a lot of mistakes I made from the first time I was an entrepreneur yeah. with, with yeah. my thing in India and that a lot of those mistakes could have been prevented by sort of properly structuring and thinking about uh, your business and not fo over focusing too much on, on planning which sort of the business model canvas is a nice tool to help you, prevent you from falling into those types of traps so definitely I'll use that concept as sort of a, a springboard uh, for thinking about other concepts like how do you apply this to, to uh, development projects basically in which don't do a lot of exploratory research or working based on local context understanding but have a very sort of centralized planning mindset yeah. right so yeah that's how I started playing with the business model canvas and that led to uh, exploration into like design thinking and which was also uh, upcoming at hmm. that point yeah and that gave me a whole new understanding of like how do you design a product how do you design a business and yeah all those ideas have sort of been collected yeah. over time on my blog and then partnerships was something that yeah sort of 
is the main thread now, but since like the last two yeah. or three years, yeah. it started off like very broad and yeah. Yeah. So now it's like, yeah, basically my topic about partnerships, it should, it deserves like it's maybe its own dedicated web page now, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's yeah. a jumble, my blog, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a collection. Yeah, of because I, I was following, I was seeing, and then uh, when the partnership uh, um, canvas popped up or the first article, after it was almost taken, uh, it was almost taking over yeah. the, the whole uh, yeah. Uh, blog. Yeah, so yeah, it's just a, a sign that it's just, an expression of my, where my interest is at at yeah. the moment, right? And that was, yeah, at a certain point, it was a lot about partnerships, yeah. And, uh, you know, I I followed some of your courses or many of your courses, I think already like four or five times. And I'm not sure uh, exactly if you have said that you you know uh, Alexander Osterwader, Eric Ries, like personally? Or no, Alex, I don't know. Okay. I've never met Eric Ries. Okay, yeah. okay. I know Alex. Ah, yeah. ah, cool. So... If anyone is uh, looking into who is Alexander Osterwader, uh, he is uh, from Geneva, Fitz uh, Switzerland, yeah, Switzerland right? yeah, Lausanne, but he yeah. is also yeah. very active or was very active uh, in, at Stanford and around Silicon Valley, then we could al almost say that you have almost direct access to this Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurial network. <laughs> is it uh, true to some certain um. extent? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I've never been. Yeah. Um, but I, I, like a good friend of mine uh, from Serbia is is yeah. is uh, working on a venture there, and I, I know I know people there. Yeah, yeah. But I've, I've never yeah. been there myself. But if yeah, if there's some reason to get you introduced to something, maybe yeah. I can help out. But I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, even if I'm in, I've I've wrote up because I was you know I was following courses with you like two three years ago too, and uh, I had these three people. Uh, very related to the to the lean, to, to, to the topic of entrepreneurship and the mm. basic uh, curriculum what you have to know basically the business model canvas is the basic to start with it's good to know and then uh, I had Alexander Osterwader Eric Ries from the lean lean camp or uh, lean startup lean startup mm. sorry the lean camp it was you <laughs> or uh, and Steve Blank and I had these names kind of bonded together and I was not sure which were you mentioning before so that's, that's that's why it's my question <laughs> but all of them are like top quality high performance uh, guys <laughs> and yeah so that was the question about this <laughs> but since 2015 uh, you kind of uh, found a balance between uh, ed education entrepreneurship and and research because even as an entrepreneurial educator, you have to uh, research and grow and learn a lot all mm. the time, and it's a whole learning process. And then you you are the, a partner at the Source Institute, mm. and I see that on your CV that partner at, so at Source Institute. Does it have any uh, specific meaning that you have the title partner? That does it have a special connection with your one of the main topics of partnership? Or it's just uh, yeah, you know, there's just a more like partner in a, in a personal sense. So yeah. if I write a, about my blog is about more about strategic partnerships, so yeah. collaborations between companies or maybe within yeah. companies, between groups of people. Yeah, and uh, yeah, my status of partner is just being a member of. Yeah, the source clan, basically. 
basically. Yeah, but yeah. but I see that you didn't use the the title as a founder or whatever. No, no, exactly. My or, Salim Virani is yeah. he's sort of the founder, and and I consider myself a co-founder in that sense because he came up with uh, the idea to start Source Institute um, in 2015, I think it was. And uh, I, I tagged along because I bought into a lot of things you were saying and I thought uh, I could contribute to that I'd really like to do that so yeah and what that's I'm not founder but yeah 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 and what is Source Institute actually the the main focus of, of uh, what you are do doing because I see there are that you are doing some supporting work also in Africa yeah uh, but what is the main main focus so what we generally uh, where our sort of opportunity lies is in uh, contexts that are really changing really fast yeah. and uh, particularly if you're working on entrepreneurial projects or you're setting up sort of discussion communities to make sense of what's going on um, you need to learn in a different way uh, you cannot tap into um, guidebooks or the books from the guru because they haven't yeah. been written yet right and uh, by the time they've been written you're your problem or your 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 focus has changed again because uh, the circumstances have changed so we're looking for fast changing environments where people need to sense make and figure out like what's my next step really quickly and that's uh, what we do at source so basically we tap into our own history as entrepreneurs and how we figured out things which is learning from from other entrepreneurs talking about sharing our challenges and failures and also our successes and uh, we basically develop formats for people to, to find each other more easily. And once they do find each other, to help to structure their sort of insight and information exchange to turn their exchange into something actionable they can apply directly, right? Yeah. It's practical. You can do things, right? Right after your discussion, yeah. for instance. Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah, there, there's so much sort of concepts and ideas we have to, to shape those into formats, but they take like a lot of work and a lot of practice and iteration that um, yeah that's we should be building like a big repository of these these types of tools and, yeah. and trying to yeah uh, provide access uh, to anybody who wants to, to use those as well yeah so it's basically a platform and also you are doing a facilitation of uh, these processes by different uh, tools and, yeah. and activities how you bring people together and to generate this peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning, yeah, because uh, in this in in that sense you are right. Like everybody, even if they are in the same industry, everybody is on a slightly different angle of the industry, and everybody has their own learning curve, which is like uh, different than the others. So, yeah. in that sense, they can teach much more to each other than uh, someone a outside. consultant yeah. or an yeah. expert yeah definitely yeah yeah there's a lot more level of knowledge uh, embedded in an organization than uh, is being made use of and yeah you yeah. can see something as a as our tools are a way of sort of solving and making that li liquefying the type of knowledge and yeah making a possible shift insights from a to b right yeah. more easily yeah and uh, lean camp uh, you were I've seen you were a part of it. It is also, I see somehow merged with Source Institute a bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was also one way of uh, facilitating this, these gatherings. Yeah, that's, that's one of our sort of, sort of flagship peer-to-peer -peer yeah. type of tools where uh, Lean Camp was sort of an unconference yeah. concept. Uh, 
started off again by Salim Varani yeah. I think in 2008 or so in London and then evolved into uh, different types of facilitation formats that you could use during the ses- during the sessions in the on conference yeah. uh, sort of increasing the, the likelihood of getting something actionable out of those sessions through those faci- facilitation formats yeah. um, we included that, that those types of learnings into yeah programs we designed uh, for source for our customers basically yeah it's one of sort of the leading things we do yeah yeah cool so yeah. it's interesting because uh, two three years ago i i've seen uh, your first link camp here in wageningen and there there were all of your partners from from link camp and source institute were, were here and all kind of uh, cool people from all over the world who were also traveling extensively and having networks and i was asking you geez, how did you meet them or, or, or what? And then I remember that you said through Twitter. Is it yeah. is it true to some extent? Yeah, it all started with Twitter, yeah. Also, Alexander Osterwalder, he was more uh, from the professional university network. Of, he was also from the... Twitter. Twitter? Yeah. Ah, nice, because you are very active on Twitter. You have uh, 8,800, more than 8,800 tweets. And, uh, I think I took 10 years to write those, so that <laughs> puts it well, a bit into perspective. But yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, like, uh, what is your relation nowadays with social media and you have any tips to use or, yeah, as, a, as an entrepreneur, yeah. as someone, especially in the food, food uh, yeah, like sustainability? A, like I'm no social media champion. Yeah. Um, I'm not really good at it, I think. Like if I would really be really good at it, I have more followers. But yeah, uh, what I primarily use it for is um, I follow interesting people that um, read stuff and share that on Twitter, which is sort of a filter for me on yeah. interesting things that I could pick up and explore. Um, and that's yeah, the main number one reason is just you know consuming information yeah. and then sharing of course like after i read it or if i've shaped yeah. my own opinion what i think about things as well on that but the, the main idea is that it's sort of a source for for new yeah. ideas new interesting people new perspectives for me yeah okay i have the same with podcasts okay <laughs> yeah. yeah but yeah. it's yeah it definitely takes time to follow uh, many many people and many many platforms that's why i'm for example i i told i'm totally foreign uh, from twitter i don't know how it works so i have like five tweets in total but if you want to go into one of these and really have uh, the real use of it instead of just hanging on it, then mm. it takes time to filter out the, the noise, let's say. Yeah. yeah. I only f- follow like a very limited amount of people, which I sort of know yeah. uh, some personally, but yeah. some I know just by, you know, really deeply knowing their backgrounds or their interests yeah. or, yeah. and, and I also, curate my my feed yeah. so at a certain point that if if i haven't been reading a lot from anybody that's interesting for the last three or four months and i'll unfollow them for instance yeah. right which and, and that creates some more space for yeah. trying out following some other people again so yeah. once in a while just sort of review like yeah. what's what's feeding me what's feeding my interest and does that still work for me or not yeah i have also similarly like if maybe with the Refollowing, like if I uh, miss someone for miss out someone for two three months, then oh look at uh, what is the last work, what who was the last uh, 
what was the last topic or who was the last person who they got mm. contact with and what was the outcome of the conversation. It's always nice to see these uh, updates mm. from our, like they are our, uh, our generation and they have also thoughts and they are spreading it and it, uh, yeah. the, directly or indirectly is it influencing us yeah so and, and twitter is also really cool for meeting very busy people yeah because ah. um th they tend to use twitter as a way for re to relax a bit yeah right uh -huh. so when they have like five spare minutes or something yeah. they just sit and they'll go through their feed and they might tweet something out and that's sort of the moment that when you can sort of respond to what they're doing right ah. uh, tag them or and then usually you I've had it multiple times that I build a relationship up with people who, like Alex, yeah. for instance, who yeah. was pretty hard to get at. Yeah. But the first contact we had was my response to some kind yeah. of tweet he had. Yeah. And it quickly just pitched a project idea or something. Said, mm, yeah. Interesting, let's talk, right? And then, yeah, yeah it got oh. going from there. So it's, it's a way for making sort of coincidences happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. nice. Uh, in that sense, you know, m many people are very critical about these social media platforms. Of course, we just uh, had this uh, last uh, Facebook scandal with 50 million people's yeah. uh, data. But in the end, we have to know how to use them because it's still very new technologies. Like, uh, you know, imagine when the caveman uh, came up with the fire, you know, in the, la in the first generation, there were a lot of uh, accidents, yeah. I guess, and problems. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you said that uh, you have this uh, Source Institute has the, uh, a special focus also on African entrepreneurs. And uh, I don't see that, uh, I, I'm very curious about your opinion because you have uh, more insight uh, to the situation in Africa. But, uh, you know, many uh, mainstream uh, scientists or these trend uh, watchers they are saying that all oh, Africa is booming but it cannot be controlled so they are looking more into the the population part of Africa and they use these trends what what was happening in the last 20 30 years and they are kind of projecting it to the 2050 for example mm -hmm. 2050 is like some crazy scary number like ooh, what, pretty what, far away yeah, yeah. what, what we're gonna happen we don't know the population will be 9 billion and it will be the most of the population growth will be in Africa but I see like I try to like step back and okay what is happening we use these trends and data from 30 40 years ago and since uh, 10 years there is internet almost everywhere and with the internet, there's a lot of information which allows them also to get into entrepreneurship, education, lots of lots of good stuff. They have the resources. They didn't have the knowledge for a long time because of access, because schooling, education. But now I see a, a huge potential in education and all kind of good stuff. Uh, what can uh, happen there? Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you see it? Uh, uh, is your question what do I see as the opportunity so I see for it, Africa? I see, it, I see it more positively than than, than as, as a scary thing, like we we hear yeah, it yeah. from uh, from even from here from Wageningen, like oh the the population is booming there. We have to feed them. I mean, <laughs> and I see that they can figure out many many better stuff than we could offer to them. I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think and that it's uh, it's getting even to sort of a breaking point where it's better, best that we, with our sort of our thoughts and our ideas cooked up here, had best just get out of the way. Yeah. Because we're in the way, right? We bring our own funding and our own concepts, and we sort of frustrate a lot of processes there. And like the first things of uh, like locally started, locally driven businesses, developments, sort of that that's coming up there, and I think that's very encouraging. Yeah. Because that's what needs to happen. They need to take control for themselves and do it. Yeah, then they can. Yeah, because for example, uh, it was just this week on Tuesday, I guess there was a symposium in the Impulse about world hunger and how can we tackle it in the future. And in the whole narrative, the whole discussion, well, IMF and uh, and the World Bank were involved as a as a constant partners, but. I was also asking them, like, hey, but then they are pretty much narrowing down the possibilities of the of the whole game. How you know, like uh, the creativity part yeah. will, is like decreasing if you have these huge donors, let's say, or huge parties who wanna who wanna invent something or wanna yeah, influence. like Burkina Faso should just focus on exporting cotton. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because it looks good on paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you say that uh, in the the big picture is more positive than it what we see from the media. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even um, if you change your lens at which you look at yeah. society, there, uh, drop all your assumptions from here and actually look what's going on. There's there's lots more wealth and 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 growth there than you can see. Yeah. Um, with without the, with our perspective and mindsets. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is was that this economic perspective of seeing things like if there is no money, oh, they need money. Yeah. But yeah, you cannot eat money. <laughs> the most important are the the health and and food and to to be more conscious about what matters in life. Yeah. No, but there are there are subtle things like. Uh, I did some field research in Kenya when I was still working for the university and I got I was lucky to get some funding to do some yeah, exploratory research without particular sort of research question or research goal at the moment but just go there and have a look and, and you see like really refined distribution systems where you'd be uh, at, a, at a sort of a, a farmer's market just south of Nairobi uh, where they were growing particular types of melons yeah. and they had figured out a distribution system to get those melons to the beach in Mombasa to specific oh. yeah. uh, places where they wanted like the best quality yeah. watermelons for their customers right so they that those are like by just asking and talking to traders and just figuring out like wh- you know, where do you bring these things and why do these go in these crates and why do these go into these crates yeah. etc they give you th- some really interesting stories about the refinement of their trade systems yeah. and you think like okay they're really thinking of ways of adding value to products already it's not just feeding people right but yeah they're also thinking of increasing quality giving some kind of an experience to products as well yeah, yeah. they're not that different from from here i mean yeah. for me entrepreneurship came uh, relatively lately late late in life let's say uh, you know, I, I've grown up in, in Hungary. It was more, you know, the socialism, and you were not allowed to start your own business. Uh, and I didn't have this paradigm. I, I had somewhere very far away, but uh, 
when I've heard like in 2013, 14, that the new boom is coming, like startups everywhere, and it was already reaching uh, the Netherlands and, and uh, Europe, I was so delighted that, wow, I can do something. I just had to figure out, I'm still figuring out, but uh, in that sense, it's a very positive and, and uh, great, uh, let's say, movement or process what, which is happening, with, which helps society in general, industries. Yeah, people have more choices because these very rigid systems, they don't work uh, that, uh, that good anymore, like these huge companies. They also struggle with innovation. But there is also a certain uh, romanticizing the entrepreneurial uh, lifestyle this, uh, with these uh, overnight successes. You know, you, you never hear about the, the struggle, what people have, only you get to know them when they are already in the finish line or closer to the finish line. And also uh, Steve Blank, uh, he, he just had a, an interview with someone when he explained that the, and they try to educate entrepreneurship, but in reality, entrepreneurship is much more close to art or art schools and the whole process of creating art than any other thing. And uh, how, do you, how do you see that? Is it, uh, uh, you see that is a kind of uh, danger in romanticizing of entrepreneurship of it's a good balance between getting the youth attention and involve them mm. and uh, you know you you have to somehow get the attention and promote this how do you think that it's uh, presented it's realistic enough for example in the netherlands in, in the dutch context yeah i think there's there's a big sort of word confusion yeah. about entrepreneurship it's um like I, I recently written like a small blog post based on a discussion I had with a couple of mentors I was uh, chatting with for uh, an accelerator program and we we're sort of reviewing the progress of certain startups and there was one startup uh, looking for investment funding and that's sort of a very sort of danger zone for an entrepreneur because they spend a lot of time uh, acquiring funds and they spend less time actually refining and developing the business and taking care of their customers, right? Because you've, yeah. that's a lot of work to get in that investment funding. And uh, we were having a discussion on like, what, how should you divide or focus, right? Um, and that way made me, we got through the discussion and then we came to sort of a conclusion that, um, you know, at that point, what you do as an entrepreneur is you just duct tape together your business and make sure it, keeps on going long enough for you to land the investment, close the deal, get the new funds. And after that is the time that you can think of what's the next step I take to, for my business, right? And yeah. I wrote a little blog post about this insight because um, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've seen that movie. The I think it... No, no you haven't seen it? Okay. No, well, it's still something where I'm like, okay, I have to yeah, spend the week. There's a scene yeah. with, uh, with one of the characters, an elf is fighting a big troll on a, yeah. on a crumbling tower over a big ravine. And the tower is crumbling at a certain point, it, it breaks. And yeah. like stones fall down and the elf character sort of steps on those stones as mm. they fall down and moves back up again. Mm. Right? So that's what I sense is what entrepreneurship is about. That you do not... Stand and wait and get a sense of how fast you're falling down those yeah. stones, but you keep walking up there. Yeah. 
right? And you, and you've you've entered yourself into sort of a a game of speed, of fast decision making, and also of confrontation of figuring out uh, within a very limited amount of time will I make this or not, right? And there are a lot of people who have a more lifestyle orientation to entrepreneurship, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I think it's that's that's more like the art part, right? the artsy yeah. part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Actually, is that you build a lifestyle where you have more time, uh, where you do have deadlines or interesting projects yeah. that you're working on. Um, uh, but that's something different than actually what yeah. building a business in a fast-paced environment is about. Yeah. And I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, actually, mm -hmm. if I would sort of reflect on the way I define it. I'm more of a contemplative character, I think. But I do work well in entrepreneurial teams. Yeah. yeah. If somebody else sets the pace yeah. for me, then okay, I'll, I'll join. I'll do that. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, uh, with the book uh, uh, E-Myth from... Uh, no. Uh, the, it's Michael E. Uh, Michael e. Gerber, the E-Myth, the myth of entrepreneurship and he says that in a business you need to have even if you are just alone you need to have three characteristics one of the visionary the entrepreneur one of the one of the manager and the third is the technician and even if you are just alone you have to have all of these characteristics because otherwise if you just build build a, a business on your technician skills then you are just creating a job for yourself from these three can you choose uh, one what is more uh, maybe more the engineering thing i like building little products so, yeah. yeah yeah and uh, entrepreneurship for you uh, as an educator is it just simply interesting because there are many many interesting processes how people and businesses interact with each other or you also see it because i see it somehow but maybe you too as a as a tool as a kind of uh, reinvented tool uh, to tackle wicked problems of the world yeah, yeah like i like i think that if you look at it at a larger scale then th yes it could have a contribution to global impact um, but i like already seeing uh, basically enlightening people yeah or maybe seeing people enlighten other people yeah. right and that has it's a way of storytelling it's a way of designing social interactions that makes yeah. people like see things and that's sort of the effect i like to play with and and, and see yeah. and i think only good things can come for that so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah cool that's the contribution to the world i guess yeah and uh, yeah many university accelerators i think in wageningen it's uh it's so it's much more as a family look it's every almost everybody knows each other and uh, so i see that the startups are somehow more safe here in wageningen from a in, in a sense that uh, i've i've read some critics about university accelerators that uh, the, uh, one of their purposes uh, that they are used through uh, they are used by big companies to kind of uh, indirectly outsource their R&D and have access to cheap knowledge and in the end they are uh, buying the company or killing the company, whatever, mm. but the, the original dream of the entrepreneur is get a little bit uh, jeopardized uh, by the big, uh, big guys. Mm -hmm. 
how do you see it is that in the dutch or a european conte- uh, context is it happening at some some extent and which industries are the most uh, you mean like entrepreneurial serfdom or something that uh, <laughs> uh yeah i mean that this uh, you know what what i just explained that the big companies uh, yeah they don't really uh, nurture the idea or nurture the entrepreneur but uh, through an accelerator they have access to this knowledge and yeah nothing is changing because they have their own uh, games and they don't want to be interrupted by any new ideas so I, it, it's happening in in energy i guess uh, it happens in many other industries mm. but i don't have the direct i don't research it but i maybe you know you have some but I, I don't follow your question is it if there is a, a danger if you are an entrepreneur yeah. you have a dream you want to change one part of the world one yeah. specific industry yeah. you see that there is another solution yeah and uh, you are a student for yeah. so you don't have much of life experience or business experience and you are at an accelerator and uh, you are you know developing your idea because you are passionate and you put your resources yeah. maybe your family's resources in it and uh, then the idea will stop at one time when you need more funding or you need you're gonna get in touch with big big companies and maybe they just uh, give you two options they're gonna buy you <laughs> yeah and then you you lose your uh, uh, your in- integrity and sovereignty and or they just uh, if you don't want to sell your technique or technology to them then uh, yeah yeah okay. you are an enemy yeah so, so I, I think that a lot of accelerator programs are designed for profit yeah right and what makes a profit is that there are startups that have gone through their program which they take some equity in actually get yeah. follow-on funding because yeah. that creates an opportunity to be bought out yeah um, but there are only so many ideas that have a good fit with such a development trajectory right and ideas that are divergent or have a smaller goal or uh, are less profitable in that sense but make some other kind of return social return or whatever they they don't fit Hmm. and they drop out of those programs yeah Um, so I think it's yeah i think entrepreneurs should always look very creatively and understand like the game the type of game they're going to play to grow their business yeah and if they have like a social impact perspective but go into a highly commercially yeah. oriented type of accelerator yeah. that's a bad match for you yeah. right and that's how ideas die basically yeah. right but if you are able to sort of uh, go your own way make your own money have find a group of customers that are willing to pay you right which gives you a stable basis to grow and develop and try out new things and do things more on your own terms rather than compromising to an external investor or some other stakeholder that has a big sort of hold on you then yeah that's a better position maybe to nurture your ideas that's why i like startup here as well it's it's more like they they support any type of student here that yeah. wants to build a business and they don't really have a profit motive to it yet. They yeah. just want to see people move and do stuff, right? Yeah. And whatever the interest is. And they give the support yeah. to that. And that's a, an interesting alternative angle uh, yeah. to 
you know, commercial acceleration, which is only good for nurturing like a very small part. Yeah, and it's getting less there. and less popular. I mean, I've what I've heard that uh, nowadays they just more advising that okay, boost bootstrap your idea that that uh, one or two years try to make a minimum viable product on your own and try to sell it and then you keep your independence and then you learn yeah yeah even like uh sort of uh investment thinkers like uh and technology thinkers like tim o'reilly is talking about uh building like a venture fund that focuses mainly on customer funded businesses right so show me the proof that you know there's actually demand for what you're trying to build right and if so then we'll help you grow it yeah. And that's also back to the point about Africa and the changes of, of lenses you need to apply there. Like yeah. all the startups in Africa, nearly all the startups, they're all customer funded if they're still around. Yeah. Right? Because there is no yeah. investor funding. Yeah. So, uh, technically, a startup there with good, a good revenue basis, a good solid growth in customers is actually pretty solid from an investor yeah. perspective. Right? And once people start seeing that, you know, the perspective might flip. Take a twist in terms of the speed that things will change, even there. Yeah. Cool. A few questions for the for the end because we are almost closing. Uh, what is the next challenge for so- Source Institute, or you have uh, other separate project uh, apart no, from, no, no, from no, Source? No, yeah, yeah. uh, buckling down on Source more and more. Um, yeah, I think that we have like a very disparate collection of experiences and tools we want to build and we want to figure out uh, how do we equip other people uh, to make a selection of the right tools to apply to whatever event or community gathering that they're hosting and getting more out of that from the people that are participating and how do we make sure that people find us to get that type of support so we'll be doing less of the intermediation ourselves so our designs uh, our way of presenting or doing the workshops but giving people the tools in such a way that they can just pick it up themselves and mm. deploy it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, as I said already, people uh, can find you in different sources on the internet because you are quite active on Twitter. Can you uh, share with us uh, the main platforms where, where you are active, uh, the website, your, your blog? Uh, yeah, my blog, uh, I haven't really been writing a lot, but uh, yeah. But it's still a useful uh, resource. Yes, yes, it's uh, valuechangegeneration.com is the, is the blog. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, I think the easiest way is just through Twitter. Hmm. Um, then I'll get into email or phone What calls is your, t- your, your Twitter name? Uh, it B- is uh, at Bart Dornemeert. At Bart Dornemeert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, physically I'm here almost every Friday, like now. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. the Start Hub uh, in Wageningen, yeah. If cool. I can, so uh, you can be fine in room number 14, just behind the copying machine. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And of course, uh, on Source Institute, that is also... Yes, of course. Yeah, if you go to source.institute, uh, you'll find... Uh, contact details there and also like access to our forum and our uh, blog there as well yeah so i hope to see you there okay thank you very much bart thank you i really enjoyed the conversation and yeah this is another way of making change you know we have to uh, give the tools to people education is pretty important yeah so thank you very much okay thanks thank you say hi to the people Uh, or here this this is your this is yours (laughs) this is mine